Well, we come to a pretty sober topic this morning of the wrath of God. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 145. In every congregation, there are tares among the wheat, professional chameleons who come to church looking nice on the outside, but as Jesus said, on the inside, they are full of dead men's bones. They are warriors in secret, fighting against the word of God. They are goats among the sheep who love their wickedness and in their hearts really hate the Savior, though they profess to love him and serve him and even come to church regularly. They gather with the saints for selfish reasons, for power or prestige, to be seen in society as moral or religious persons. Maybe to gain an advantage for their business. Maybe to have their guilty consciences massaged. They are Judases among the apostles, hiding from others the true condition of their wicked and unrepentant hearts. And many know in their heart that they are not saved. But they hope evolution is true. And that Christianity is a lie while they come to church Sunday after Sunday. They delude themselves into thinking that though they live and die as rebels, maybe their good deeds will somehow outweigh their bad deeds. After all, God is a God of love and mercy and compassion. Surely he will not cast them into hell because after all, they have been good people. And if this is you... You need to listen to the truth. God is a God of wrath. Theologian and Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards preached three sermons, three sermons that he directed towards unrepentant professing believers. One was entitled, The Punishment of the Wicked, Unavoidable, and intolerable. Another, the wicked, useful in their destruction only, and probably his most famous, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And Edwards warns those who would make a false show of Christianity. He says, the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open 
And the fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, 10,000 times greater than the sturdiest and stoutest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, the arrow made ready on the string, the justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. And then Edwards continued. That was a sermon et from the portion of his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, from Deuteronomy 32:35. Today, Edward's sermon is often required reading in secular colleges and universities where students scoff and laugh at his descriptions of the wrath of God and the fate of the unrepentant sinner. And what they fail to realize is that Edwards did not exaggerate when he was describing the wrath of God. He was underplaying it. The sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was preached from Deuteronomy 32, 35, where the Lord says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Edwards builds on the metaphor of standing on a slippery place. A description of a person standing, as it were, on ice, and any moment, unknown to them, their feet will come out from under them, and they will fall. And that is not Edwards' imagery. That is God's imagery. And some people, after reading Edwards' sermon, some, quote, Christian theologians today, say Edwards was sadistic in the way that he described hell. They say this because they have failed to read the Bible. In the very chapter that Edwards preached that sermon from, a few verses later, in verses 39 through 42 of Deuteronomy 32, this is how God describes himself. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword, then my hand takes hold on justice. I will render vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain the captives that is how god describes himself edwards was merely preaching the word of god have you ever heard a sermon like that have you ever heard somebody preach on the wrath of god 
Many have not, though they have gone to church for many years, though it is a dominant theme in Scripture. The church is failing to proclaim who God is. He is a God of wrath. Influential and well-known Christian teach that, well, God is more of a loving God, a compassionate God, a gracious God. He's not really wrathful. As a matter of fact, pop theologian Tom Harper has said, there are few ideas in the entire history of religion that have caused more misery and cruelty and misunderstanding than the concept of a fiery hell, end quote. Thomas Talbot in his book, The Doctrine of Everlasting Punishment, a title that is an oxymoron in itself, says to believe in hell and the internal wrath of God is an altogether pagan conception of God. Clark Pinnock, who used to be a conservative theologian who has now gone liberal, says the doctrine of God's eternal wrath is a monstrous belief. And it will cause many people to turn away from Christianity. It will hurt and not help our evangelism, end quote. Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle says hell is an odious conception and blasphemous, blasphemous in its view of the creator. John A.T. Robinson said it is the final mockery of God's nature. Among the people who have taught that there isn't a fiery hell, that God is God and not is not a God of wrath, is Michael Green. Many of you have probably seen his books or heard about him. John R. W. Stott and the late F. F. Bruce taught against the reality of hell. Of course, F. F. Bruce, now in glory, has changed his view. But what do you think of all of this? When you are out in the world... When you are talking to people and people are dialoguing with you and you hear people say things like, oh, hell is Manhattan at rush hour. That's what Woody Allen said. And we would expect people like Woody Allen to have a bogus view of hell. But we do not expect Christians who profess to believe the Bible to reject God's wrath. No. As a matter of fact, J.I. Packer correctly notes the modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, and not all do, say little about it, and perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness but says virtually nothing about his judgment. How often during the past year did you hear, or if you are a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? The fact is, the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter, end quote. Well, it is my goal this morning not to disappoint God and downplay or try to explain away the perfection of His wrath the very essence of his being. And I will do my best to preach straight to you. And I want you to know, some of you are maybe thinking, well, Jack, what are you doing trying to scare us? Of course I am. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning. And if you have no fear of God and no fear of his wrath, you are a fool. God's wrath is a serious issue. It is a real issue. And everyone will soon be convinced that it is true. This morning, I want to focus our attention on Psalm 145, verse 20. So if you have Psalm 145 open, look at verse 20. The verse reads, The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. From this text, you should glean three realities of God's wrath. One, God is perfectly and infinitely wrathful. Two, the object of God's wrath are unrepentant sinners. Three, God's wrath is expressed eternally towards the sinner in the lake of fire. And then four, we will make some application of how you must live in light of God who is wrathful. So know your God is perfectly and infinitely wrathful. What specifically do we mean by wrath before we start talking about it? Webster defines wrath as a strong vengeful anger or indignation. The handbook to the Bible defines God's wrath as God's intense controlled hatred of sin expressed in the condemnation of sin and the sinner. The New Bible Dictionary defines wrath as the permanent attitude, notice the permanent attitude, attitude of the holy and just God when confronted by sin and evil. A personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous and his love would degenerate into sentimentality. It is as permanent and as consistent an element in his nature as is his love, end quote. The wrath of God can be divided up into three different categories. There is what we might refer to as the historical wrath of God. That is examples of God's wrath in history. Secondly, there is the future wrath to come. This is often called the eschatological wrath or the wrath of God in the last days. And then there is the most severe degree of God's wrath, which is his eternal wrath poured out upon all unrepentant sinners for all eternity. So why do people minimize the wrath of God? Why do they not realize that God is a wrath of God? Why do they find it so easy to just ignore God's wrath, even though the pages of Scripture are replete with information about God and Him being a God of wrath? Consider how God has cursed all creation... And all men, because of the sin, the one sin of Adam. You want to know how God feels about sin? You want to see his wrath? Know that when Adam disobeyed the one command, that cursed the entire creation. And every person that has ever been born since that time has been conceived in sin 
has come out of the womb a sinner and then sins because they're a sinner because of God's wrath poured out on the human race because of the sin of one man, the one sin of the one man. Consider the flood whereby God in wrath wiped out all the animals and men on the face of the earth except for Noah and his small family. Consider the plagues of Egypt, the destruction of Pharaoh's army. Consider the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about all the plagues, the judgments, the captivities, the trials that God put Israel through and other nations through because they would not obey his word. And as severe as those things are, Recorded in the pages of history, they are nothing to be compared to the historical wrath to come. Jesus, speaking of the tribulation in Matthew 24, 21, said, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now think about that. If at the flood... Everyone was killed and all animals were killed but eight people. Jesus says that in the days to come in history on this planet, there will be a more severe judgment than that. You ask yourself, well, how could that be? Because there are going to be more people on the planet and God is not going to be merciful to them by allowing them to die quickly. He will slowly execute his wrath on the earth over a period of seven years. But the greatest expression of God's wrath is not found in history, past, or in the tribulation to come, but in hell, in the lake of fire, in the pit, in Hades, and Sheol. The future and eternal resting place for Satan, demons, and all unrepentant sinners of all the ages. It is the most severe expression of God's wrath. And it is that wrath that our text speaks to. If you look at Psalm 145 verse 20, you may say, well, Jack, how do you see all these things in here? Well, let me show you. In this one verse, we have two attributes of God contrasted with two kinds of people, contrasted with two final outcomes. The Lord is the subject in both parts of verse 20. He is the doer of the action towards both groups. The first group, the text says, the Lord keeps. A word that describes his preservation, salvation, and deliverance. This is the attribute of God's mercy and grace whereby he saves sinners. The group that he chooses to save are those who love him. He keeps them forever. That is, he saves them. So we have God, his attributes of grace and mercy, his action keeping, the objects of his action, those who love him. 
But the second attribute of God towards the second group of people and the second final outcome is our topic for this morning. Notice the contrasting word but in the middle of the verse. This word tells us that whatever is true of the first half of the verse is now going to be contrasted. There is going to be a contrast made between that first group, those who love the Lord, whom the Lord keeps because he is gracious and merciful, with a second group. The text tells us that the second group, God, destroys. This implies several attributes of God. It implies his righteousness. It implies his holiness. It implies his justice and his wrath. And since we have already covered the first three, we'll look at wrath. The text speaks clearly to all of us, reminding us that God is wrathful. He will destroy all the wicked. The Hebrew word translated destruction means to destroy, overthrow, demolish, exterminate, annihilate, or devastate. The particular tense of this Hebrew verb used in this verse is intensive and it is causative. What that means is this. In the first half of the verse, when it says, the Lord keeps, it uses a general, um, just present active Hebrew tense. It's talking about the Lord will be in the process of keeping those who love him. But when he gets to this half of the verse, an intensive, causative Hebrew verb is used, which means this. It means God will bend his will to cause himself to utterly destroy the wicked. He will make it his goal and his aim to hunt down and everlastingly punish those who are wicked. That's what the text is saying. According to the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, this word in this tense means to feel oneself compelled or obliged to destroy something. The scriptures are clear about this essential attribute of God. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 7.10, speaking of God's character, says, He repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Psalm 94.1 and 2, mind you, a psalm of praise says... O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 and verse 8 tells us a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies and will pursue his enemies into darkness. If you believe the Bible, there is no doubt God is a God of wrath. It is settled in the pages of Scripture. He is jealous and vengeful, and he hates both the sin and the sinner, and he will bend his will to utterly destroy them. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology points out, it may surprise us to find out how frequently the Bible talks about the wrath of God. And if God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. 
A.W. Pink writes that it, anybody who can take out a concordance will readily find out that Jesus spoke far more of the wrath of God than the love, mercy, and grace of God. If God looks upon sin and wickedness with the same pleasure as purity and obedience, he is not loving, he is not righteous, he is not holy. The love, holiness, and righteousness of God require necessarily that God hate those things that oppose who he is. God must hate wickedness and evil, both the sin and the sinner, and he will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. D.A. Carson, in a journal article entitled God's Love and God's Wrath, points out, quote, that 14 times in the first 50 psalms alone, the psalmist state that God hates the sinner, that his wrath is on the liar, and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests on both the sin, Romans 1, 18 through 23, that Lou read earlier, and the sinner. The only God The one and only God is a God of wrath, and that's what the Word of God says. Who are the objects of his wrath? We have mentioned it already. Look at the text. All the wicked. All the wicked. The wicked describes those who are sinners. The Hebrew word has two aspects to it. The Hebrew word wicked can describe those who have sinned or those who have been found guilty because they have sinned. Of course, both aspects apply here. All those who are ungodly, wicked sinners, God has found to be guilty and the text says he will destroy them. Anyone who cannot stand before the judge of heaven and earth, perfect holy, flawless, without stain or spot, being perfectly just in his sight, is considered a wicked person and will be judged for all eternity. God, in the fierceness of his anger, will set his will to utterly destroy them. In fact, Romans 9.22 calls the unrepentant vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Paul in Ephesians 2.3 refers to the wicked as children of wrath and sons of disobedience. That is, they are children who because of their disobedience make themselves targets for the wrath of God. In John chapter 3, verse 36, John tells us that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on them. That is, it remains, stays, dwells, hanging over them. But some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, if all men are sinners, then does God's wrath abide on all men? Does it abide on me? Not necessarily. Though all men are sinners and all men are guilty before God, 
generally speaking, there is a certain group that are not guilty before God. When the wicked man turns from his wicked way and his unrighteous thoughts, and he turns to the Lord and receives Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, when he is forgiven and changed and transformed and born again and made into a new creature, Ephesians 1.7 tells us, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul speaking to the Colossians about salvation said in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When you repent of your sins, when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, when you give your whole life to him and submit to him as your Lord, when you receive him as the only way to be saved, you are totally forgiven. You are washed clean, and in Christ's sight, you are perfectly holy and just, and God sees you as as righteous as Christ himself. And that is why Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I warn you, there is condemnation. There is wrath abiding on all unrepentant sinners. And this includes atheists, and it also includes all those who go to church week after week, month after month, year after year, who profess to know Christ, but do not. Who are very religious, but don't know the Savior. They may read their Bible, they may pray, they may try to do good. But if that person has never repented of their sins, that person is merely storing up wrath for themselves and God's wrath abides on them. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say, to whom more is given, more is required. And the unrepentant sinner who sits in church week after week who will not give their lives to Christ, that person is given more and more knowledge and judgment mounts up against them. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned back. For the last state has become worse for them than the first. Why does he say that? I'll tell you why. Because at the beginning, God's wrath abides on them. But after they had learned the truth and escaped the defilements of the world and then turned back to those same things again, now they have all the same wrath that used to abide on them, plus the greater amount of wrath because they know the truth. Psalm 11.6 says, Upon the wicked God will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Matthew 3.12, John the Baptist compares the believers to wheat and the wicked to chaff and says Christ will burn them up with unquenchable fire. 
Romans 1.18, as read earlier, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Revelation 21.8 says, Before the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Heed Jesus' warning to the unbelieving Jewish leaders. In Luke 13, 3 and 5, he told them, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That is the object of God's wrath, unrepentant sinners. Third, know that God's wrath is expressed eternally towards the sinner in the lake of fire. The third contrast made in our text is between those that the Lord keeps forever and those which he causes himself to destroy forever. The Lord will destroy them eternally. Now, there are those that you will encounter today, as I have mentioned earlier, who teach a false doctrine called annihilationism. Annihilationism is the view that the wicked will be burnt up eternally. In other words, they will be judged by God and caused not to exist. They would argue that if you put some wood into the fire, it's burnt up, it's gone, and that's what happens to the wicked. They would say, look at the words in the lexicon. It allows for annihilation to be just disintegrated, to be no more. And arguments like that appeal to many who do not want to consider that their unbelieving loved ones have God's wrath abiding on them, or worse yet, that those whom they love who have died rejecting Christ are now suffering torment and headed for an eternal suffering in the lake of fire. They don't want to think about that, and so they deny what the Scriptures teach. Rejecting God's eternal wrath appeals to those who want to create God in their own image, who want to worship an idol made in the likeness of their sentiments. And the thought of annihilationism appeals to those who are unrepenting and living in immorality and rebellion against God, who profess to be believers, but in their hearts they are not. It is comforting and even a relief to some to think that after physical death, their soul and spirit will cease to exist, they will no longer be conscious, and they will escape eternal torment. This doctrine takes the sting out of death the need to fear the Lord and allows them to continue in their depravity. And hence, it is a popular view, but it is not a biblical view. And we might put forth logical arguments in an effort to defend the existence of eternal punishment. You know, you could say, well, if hell does not exist, then what do we need to be saved from? That's pretty significant. Why flee from the wrath to come if there's no wrath? Secondly, what do we need to be saved from? If there is no eternal consequences, then why do we need salvation? Why did Jesus die on the cross and suffer God's wrath so we could be saved from what? Nothing? Why do we need atonement? Why do we need to 
have Jesus's blood applied to us if there is nothing to fear? Listen, if hell is not eternal, neither is heaven. We are promised eternal life if we believe and eternal destruction if we do not. If there is no eternal destruction, neither is there eternal life. You cannot pick and choose. But let God be found true and every man be a liar. Let God's word speak for itself. Justice, love, grace, mercy, and compassion are no more attributes of God than his wrath. Either you take them all or you don't take the true God. If you have molded God by your sentiments into an image that he is not, may the word of God convince you right now that he is who he says he is. And he will punish every unrepentant sinner for all eternity. Isaiah 66, 24 says of the wicked, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Jesus Jesus takes the same imagery, quotes the same text in relation to hell when he says in Mark 9, 47 through 48, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. What is he talking about? Why does he quote that verse? The imagery is this, that The unrepentant sinner in hell is eternal food for the gnawing flames of hell and eternal fuel for the fires of God's fierceness and his anger. They will be always burning but never dead. Matthew 18.8 speaks of hell as the eternal fire. Mark 9.43, the unquenchable fire. Matthew 25.46 speaks of the wicked going into eternal punishment. Oh, some say, the Bible doesn't teach eternal hell. Open your eyes. Paul speaking to the Thessalonians about the judgment to come and the fate of the wicked said in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 through 9, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. All the wicked will suffer eternal destruction. It is all that waits for them. They are useful in their destruction only. Because all their life they fail to give glory to God, they will not submit to God, they will do nothing for the glory of God. And so every deed that they do, whether good or bad in the eyes of society, is counted against them. And so God's only opportunity to get glory from them is to judge them and execute his justice and there glorify himself as being a God who is just and wrathful. Revelation 14, 9 through 11, speaking of those who reject Christ and who worship the beast during the 
tribulation period, the Antichrist says this, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Did you see that? Tormented day and night forever and ever. No rest day and night. Does that sound like burn up once for all? Not in your life. Not on your life. W.B. Goodby, in his commentary on Revelation, writes, Infidels and skeptics of all ages who under the cognomen of religion have written wagon loads of books to to disprove the eternity of the sinner's punishment is here settled by the Holy Ghost beyond the possibility of cavil. Thomas Watson, in his work, A Body of Divinity, relates the eternal nature of God to the eternal punishment of sinners, saying, quote, Eternity is a sea without bottom and banks. After millions of years, there is not one minute in eternity wasted. And the dam must be ever burning, but never consumed, always dying, but never dead. They shall seek death, but shall not find it, Revelation 9, 6. The fire of hell is such as multitudes of tears will not quench it. Length of time will not finish it. The vial of God's wrath will be always dropping upon the sinner. As long as God is eternal, he lives to be avenged upon the wicked. Oh, eternity, eternity, who can fathom it? Mariners have their plummets to measure the depths of the sea. But what line or plummet shall we use to fathom the depth of eternity? The breath of the Lord kindles the eternal fire, Isaiah thirty thirty three. And where shall we have engines or buckets to quench that fire? Oh, eternity. If all the body of earth and sea were turned into sand, and all the air up into the starry heaven were nothing but sand, and a little bird should come every 10,000 years and fetch away in her bill but a tenth part of a grain of all that heap of sand, what numberless years would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away. Yet, if at the end of all that time the sinner might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But that word ever breaks the heart. The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. What a terror this is to the wicked enough to put them into a cold sweat to think that as long as God is eternal, he lives forever to be avenged upon them, end quote. Do not deceive yourself, do not delude yourself or lie to yourself and think that, oh, God's not that angry about sin. He is perfectly angry. And he is perfectly angry about everyone's sin. How angry is he? Well, I like what D.A. Carson said. You want to see the love of God? Look at the cross. You want to see the wrath of God? Look at the cross. He killed his only begotten son. Had him tortured mercilessly hung on a cross, crucified, because his wrath had to be, had to be executed on sin. 
Now, how should you live in light of all this? What is the application of the wrath of God? Well, if you are a secret rebel against God, if you are one of those people who carries a concealed weapon in your heart against God and his truth, may God grant you mercy to hear what I'm going to tell you. Do not lie to yourself and convince yourself that everything is okay. No, it's not your job. It's not your marriage. It's not your neighbor. It's no one else. There is no problem in your life that is the problem bigger than God's wrath abiding on you. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, The Future Punishment of the Wicked, Unavoidable and Intolerable, says, Now wicked men not only hate God, but they slight him. They are not afraid of him, but will subdue their contempt. When he shall come to take them in hand, they will hate him still. But they will not slight him. They will not make light of his power as they now do. They will see and feel too much of the infinity of his power to slight it then. Edwards goes on to say, but God has undertaken to convince them that those threatenings are true and he will make them know that they are true so that they will never doubt anymore forever. Yet, in a little while, they will be convinced by dear experience. Hell is not a reality you want to be convinced of by dear experience. Secondly, do not lie to yourself and think that hell's torments will not be as bad as some people make them think or as the Word of God even says they are and that somehow you will be able to endure it. You know, hell's not going to be a great place. I mean, but all the fun people there, all the interesting people are there. All the immoral, godless rebels are there. And I'm going to be in hell with a bunch of people parting for all eternity. And no, we won't be able to see Jesus, but what's the big deal? Who wants to be in heaven and sit around all bored, plucking a harp on a white cloud? William Gurnall said, But think not, sinners, that you shall escape thus. God's mill goes slow, but grinds small. And the more Admirable his patience and bounty now is, the more dreadful and supportable will be that fury which arises out of his abused goodness. Nothing smoother than the sea, yet when stirred into a tempest, nothing rages more. Nothing so sweet as the patience and goodness of God, and nothing so terrible as his wrath as when it takes fire." Edwards writes, quote, What will it signify for a worm which is about to be pressed under the weight of some great rock to let fall with its whole weight upon it to collect its strength and set itself up to bear the weight of the rock and to preserve itself from being crushed by it? Much more in vain will it be for a poor damned soul to endeavor to support itself under the weight of the wrath of Almighty God. What is the strength of man who is but a worm to support himself against the power of Jehovah, against the fierceness of his wrath? What is man's strength when set to bear up against the exertions of infinite power? The implied answer, they are nothing. You will be crushed and utterly destroyed. Third, do not lie to yourself and deceive yourself into thinking you can repent tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation and only today. 
I used to mow lawns when I was growing up. And the person next door was an older gentleman. He was, worked for the railroad, had uh, one peg leg. And I used to mow his lawn. And it would start getting tall. And he'd say, Jack, are you going to mow the lawn? I'd say, I'll mow it tomorrow. And he said, tomorrow never comes. And I always wondered why he said that. And so I asked him, what do you mean tomorrow never comes? He says, well, as soon as it's tomorrow, then it's not tomorrow. Tomorrow's the day after that. And if you wait until tomorrow, tomorrow never comes. Well, those of you who have not given your life to Christ, I want you to know tomorrow never comes. Did you hear what Lou read from Luke 12? About the man who said, I will build bigger barns. I will enjoy myself. I will eat, drink, and be merry. And what did God say? You fool. For this very night, your life is required of you. Today is the day of salvation. It is only today. It is ever today. Don't presume on God's goodness. Flee from the wrath and accept Christ. But what if you are a believer? Then God's wrath has practical application for you as well. Don't ignore this doctrine or attribute of God. Dwell on it. Think about it. It's healthy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord prompts you to obedience, to keep God's commandments, to not sin, because you know in your heart It is because of these things, these sins that are tempting you, the wrath of God comes. So why would you indulge in that which God hates? Secondly, share the gospel with the lost. Remember what the apostle Paul said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we what? Persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Some of you may be thinking, oh, I've got this person in my family or this neighbor or this other person. Think of them in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, cast into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever in exquisite torment for all eternity. And will you be so concerned about your comfort as not to share with them that they might be saved? Third, praise God for his eternal wrath. You're saying, are are you sure? Remember what we read from Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2? Praise him. What is Psalm 145? A psalm of praise of David. And what does this psalm tell us to do? Praise God for who he is. And who is God? He is a holy God, a just God, and a wrathful God who will destroy the wicked. We need to be like those people who are under the throne in Revelation who cry out, How long, O Lord, faithful and true, will you refrain yourself from being avenged? That is what the people of God do. If you do not like to praise God for his wrath, then you do not like to praise God for the only God worthy of praise is a God of wrath. So if you don't know Christ, 
come to him. If you're thinking I'm trying to scare you, I am. If you think all of these things I've put together, I've put together out of the scriptures because I want to compel you to come to Christ, I hope it's true. I hope your conscience gnaws at you. I hope you live in terror and dread. I hope you can't sleep, and I hope that you think about it all the time if you've never given, given your life to Christ. I hope God never lets you forget this until you bow the knee completely to Christ. Charles Spurgeon in his daily devotion, Morning and Evening, addresses John the Baptist's statement to the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 7. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, who were very religious, mind you, very pious, looked good in the outside, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It is his devotional for February 25th, the morning. Spurgeon says, It is pleasant to pass over a country after a storm has spent itself, to smell the freshness of the herbs after the rain has passed away, and to note the drops while they glisten like purest diamonds in the sunlight. That is the position of a Christian. He is going through a land where the storm has spent itself upon the Savior's head, and if there be a few drops of sorrow falling... They distill from clouds of mercy. And Jesus cheers him by the assurance that they are not for his destruction. But how terrible it is to witness the approach of the tempest, to note the forewarnings of the storm, to mark the birds of the heaven as they droop their wings, to see the cattle as they lay their heads low in terror, to discern the face of the sky as it grows black and look to the sun which shines not and the heavens which are angry and frowning. How terrible to await the dread advance of a hurricane such as occurs sometimes in the tropics, to wait in terrible apprehension till the wind shall rush forth with fury, tearing up trees and their roots, forcing rocks from their pedestals and hurling down all the dwelling paces of man. And yet, sinner, this is your present position. No hot drops have as yet fallen, but a shower of fire is coming. No terrible winds howl around you, but God's tempest is gathering its dread artillery. As yet the water floods are dammed up by mercy, but the floodgates shall soon be opened, and the thunderbolts of God are yet in his storehouse, but lo, the tempest hastens, and how awful shall that moment be when God, robed in vengeance, shall march forth in fury. Where, 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 O sinner, will you hide your head, or where will you flee? Oh, that the hand of mercy may now lead you to Christ. He is freely set before you in the gospel. His riven side is the rock of shelter. You know your need of him. Believe in him and cast yourself upon him, and then the fury shall be overpassed forever. Let's pray. Father, we are, are terrified to think of your wrath. And Father, though great men who were great writers for all their might tried to describe what hell is going to be like and the fierceness of your wrath it comes woefully short. And Father, to think that all of those who know you here were at one time 
children of disobedience, children of wrath. Father, that your wrath hung over them, each one of us, because we were sinners in rebellion. And Father, may thoughts of this cause us to be so grateful and so thankful. May it motivate us to obey you with all of our heart. May it motivate us to share the gospel. May it motivate us to praise and worship you for you are a God who is worthy. And Father, if there are people here who up until this time have not given their life to Jesus Christ, Father, I pray right now that they would repent, that with all their might and all their being, they would cast themselves upon you, asking you to save them and forgive them from the wrath to come, that they would no longer lie to themselves and no longer deceive themselves. And Father, I pray that no one makes a false profession this morning. I pray that no one would come forward merely as a show, merely because they are terrified and not because they see themselves as sinners needing salvation and they see Jesus as the only way. Father, I pray that you would grant repentance this morning. And Father, if anybody leaves here that doesn't know you, may you hunt them down. May you convince them now in this life that you are a God of wrath so that they will not have to be convinced by dear experience in the future. Father, we pray these things because we know they're true. We know they're your will. Amen.